It is amazing to be here with y'all. Really, it actually kind of feels like a miracle um, because for a really long time, I hadn't been back in a church. Um, so it feels definitely like a miracle to be preaching in one. Um, my Three years ago, Kate would not have believed that I would be this person standing in front of you. Um, so it's kind of fun to to hold that. Um, I'm originally from Texas, if y'all can tell from the y'alls that I keep using. Y'all is almost like an um for people who are <laughs> from Texas. Um, I moved up here three years ago to go to the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology for um, counseling, so I'm studying to be a therapist. I'm in my last year going into internship. Um, and so I found when I was in school that I uh, could focus better when I was drawing. And so you're going to see some of my artwork up here. There you go. Um, I learned that doing art while I was uh, studying or listening to a professor really helped me to uh, understand the material better and to not kind of let my brain go, go all over the place. So um, I had a professor, and Megan did too actually, um, called Dan Allender, and he is obsessed with the concept of stories. His life focus is on trauma and abuse, and his classes can be really intense and really heartbreaking. And he's also a riveting storyteller and probably one of the more unique individuals that I've ever met. And I think Megan would also be able to tell you that too. Is it too close to my mouth, Kevin? Okay. I'm not used to the Britney Spears mic. <laughs> I feel like I need, yeah. Um. <laughs> Um, so one afternoon, I was meeting with him in his office to talk about a paper that I had written, and his office hours were like gold. If, you, if he had opened up his sign-up sheet, they would spot to be gone super, super quick. So I was sitting with him in his office, and that in itself felt like an accomplishment. And uh, his office overlooks the sound and train tracks. And I was chatting with him about a paper that I wrote about my family dynamics for a psychology class. And I asked him about a note that I um, had read that he'd given, commenting on something that he'd seen. And I asked him if what he had said was really true. Because if it was, it was heartbreaking. And I could barely hold it. I didn't want, to be want it to be true, and I also wanted to be seen. So he looked at me really solemnly with these big eyes. And he said in a way that I feel like larger than life mentor characters talk in like fantasy novels or movies and he was like I know the sound of each kind of train that passes by outside my window I know if it's a commuter train or a freight train just by listening to the sound all I'm doing with your paper is I'm reflecting back to you what you've already told me and that's what I needed to hear I needed to hear what I was already saying I was already telling stories about past trauma and everyday life, unaware that that's what I was doing. 
And those types of papers were just asking me to solidify what I already knew deep in my gut but had trouble speaking aloud. And let's be honest, it can be terrifying to tell your stories because the truth can sometimes be devastating. I love this quote by my professor from his book, To Be Told. It says, we grow up in a sea of stories told in a way that fits what we want others to know about us. The stories told in most families are a kind of propaganda. The tragedy is that often these stories are simply a form of disinformation, but our families name us without knowing the consequences. So our life is a journey to discover our true name, though sadly many of us never choose to begin the search. I'm not sure what we actually realize, that we actually realize what we're asking for when we ask someone about their lives. I had a date, on a, I was on a first date, and the guy sits down and he's like, so tell me your life story. And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> um, I don't know how to do that. Um, uh, so I was at a loss because by this point I had been in three years of grad school and have been through spiritual deconstruction. I was like, I don't even know who I am anymore. Um, so I muddled through some answer that was probably not what I, I would have given if I had really been able to think about it. He had no problem telling me about his life. So, yeah. <laughs> we are not together. Um, <laughs> There's not going to be a wedding. Um, so, many times storytelling can feel really dangerous, threatening to overwhelm us with pain and emotion our body is holding. But those stories especially need to be gently told to someone who is safe. Especially the hard ones. Especially the ones we can't bear to speak. They deserve to be witnessed and held by a safe person just another way of saying no to evil and harm and standing in the knowing that our stories matter and that shame and despair will not win. There's a saying at my school that you cannot take anyone further than you've gone yourself. Learning more about how we came to be helps us work out of our strengths and our weaknesses. It frees us to live in the present instead of our lives being dictated by our past. And I love this quote by Swiss psychiatrist and psychoanalyst Carl Jung. He says, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. An important part of our own storytelling is understanding the characters and events that shaped us because they're moving us now, whether we realize it or not. And I found that it's often the tender places that have been given a flimsy narrative as protection against the reality of our lives that need the most attention wrapped in words like, what happened wasn't that bad, or other people suffered worse than me, or at least that person didn't do more than that. So bringing curiosity to those spaces can open up new insights that lead our mind and body towards healing. And I've learned it's best not to compare traumas or enter the trap of saying someone else had it worse, so why should I complain or be impacted about my own life? We can honor our stories by staying away from comparison and acknowledging that what hurt us really did wound us. For me, that was revolutionary. Now I'm learning to ask questions of the Bible as well, to wonder why the narrator is telling a story in a certain way, or to ask whose voice is being silenced or whose voice is being heard. What scenes are being shown or glossed over? 
I'm returning to the biblical text with eyes and see the threads of a story using my brain as well as my heart. And like my professor said, we should be listening to the sounds of trains that pass by and name what they actually are, because naming is really powerful. Naming reality is even more powerful. And it's not usually encouraged. It reminds me of the story of the emperor with no clothes and how the only one who was brave enough to say that the emperor didn't have any clothes was a child. And like sometimes I think we need to return to that state. Like, what, what am I actually seeing right now? But as a child and a young adult, for me to question the Bible was to question reality as a whole and it threatened my emotional and social safety in my Christian community. So it was too dangerous and it was never anything I knew that I could do. Doubt was like the number one sin, unspoken sin. I had to swallow the narrative given to me about God and my life because that's what I was being fed and that's what would keep me safe. But now I can't use the Pollyanna rhetoric I was forced to take in when I was younger, when my body was denied a voice. Back then, my anxiety was shamed with be anxious for nothing and Psalm 23 was shoved on me from a distance while I was on the floor panicking, thinking I was going to shatter into a million pieces. I know now what I didn't know as a child, that anything that denies someone's reality and silences them is a form of abuse. Unfortunately, spiritual gaslighting and all forms of abuse run rampant through many Christian communities, including the one I grew up in. So the dissonance between the reality of my suffering and how people used the biblical text became too much to bear a few years ago, and I had to walk away from what I knew. I remember going into my school the very first year being like, my spiritual life is not going to change. Because I heard that, <laughs> I know, it's really, <laughs> I heard that the, the school that I was going to was like just um, could blow people's lives up. Um, and I was so determined that it wasn't going to blow my spiritual life up. Uh, yeah, that, I'm so proud of how determined I was that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> um, I could no longer hold who I had been with who, uh, who had been told God was with who I saw God to be. And I, was an, I became an anxious mess every time I had to interact with scripture or I tried to enter a church. My spiritual trauma was coming to the surface and I didn't know it then, but it was the beginning of my faith deconstruction. I had a um, dean of students, Paul Stanky, I sat with him in his office and I was freaking out about because I come from super conservative evangelical background, and so to not go to church was really scary. Um, and he said, nature was, is the world's first scripture, and encouraged me to go sit in a forest and just be with um, what was there and let nature speak to me. It reminded me of the verse, the rocks and the trees cry out. And so that was a place of safety. I began to go to nature. But ironically, something else that's allowed me to return in small doses of the time, at a time, are the traumatic biblical stories. Um, they're what Phyllis Tribble names. Oh, family portrait. It's what Phyllis Tribble names, text of terror. She writes in her book of the same name, if art imitates life, scripture likewise reflects it in both holiness and horror. Reflections themselves neither mandate nor manufacture change, yet by enabling insight they may inspire repentance. So in other words, sad stories may yield new beginnings. Yet another professor, 
Dr. Angela Parker, who taught my New Testament class, said, when looking at scriptures, we need to remember the context, text, context, sandwich. We need to look at the original context of the setting of the biblical story. And the next is the text. What does the text actually say? And then context. So what does it look like in the context we find ourselves? And how does the Bible impact us now? So for me, this looks like looking at the stories of women in the Bible and their specific ancient day context, referencing what, would, what different commentators have to say about the original language used and specific words chosen, because unfortunately right now I don't speak Hebrew or Greek um, yet. Um, never. Uh, <laughs> and then how do those stories influence me now, understanding and not appropriating their experiences, because I'm a white woman, but letting their stories impact me. So now I can see the Bible stories for what they are rather than packaging them up to be what they're not. And I know now that I don't have to agree with all of scripture and the actions I see in it to consider myself a follower of Christ, which is probably the most heathen statement that I've ever made, ever. But I've learned things that aren't, things are not black and white. There's a myriad of color in between everything. And it's a relief to just name the trauma, the horror, the anger that I see in scripture and not immediately have to create a new narrative for it to make it prettier um, or to give it a happy ending or to help it make sense for me now in my own life context and situation. Because we all know that's not true for many stories of the Bible. There's not happy endings and many of our own as well. And some things just don't make sense. And too often we place our context and agenda on the Bible, forgetting to look at where the author started and what the text actually says. Our lives and traumatic stories cannot be wrapped up with a verse and a bow. No amount of platitudes or perfuming can cover up the stench of torture and death, but to do so, it also denies there's true beauty. You cannot cover up an enormous piece of life and then expect that you can see the other parts clearly. I've learned in school that if you numb one thing, you numb it all. So now I can return to the text because of Bathsheba, because of her helplessness in a system that used her beauty against her, because of her intimate betrayal by a man who had sex with her and then killed her husband, because of Tamar and her story, because of her sexual assault and how it echoes, echoes piece of, pieces of my own story, her voice of protest and terror and then subsequent silencing reminds me that I am not alone. There is another voice crying out, and she is in scripture. I return because of Ruth, because of her strength and drive to survive, even as she was forced to play the deadly game of being a woman in ancient Israel. I love, have loved studying her because she reminds me that I can be cunning, tender, beautiful, and strong, a walking paradox to many then and now who support the harmful patriarchal systems that keep women silent. I return because of Job. His burning questions about pain and despair echo my own, and he was probably one of the things that kept me reading the Bible for as long as I did because of his unanswered wise and, and horror and questioning God. I return because of the bleeding woman and the paralyzed man, because of their bodies and their need 
and their hopelessness and their despair and their resilience to keep coming back again and again and to keep reaching out for something, not knowing if their prayers or if their bodies would ever be healed. I return because of Jesus, because of his love, suffering, and humanity, because of his screams at the end for the father who seemingly abandoned him and was silent. I return because of the questions, not because of the answers the Bible supposedly gives. And I return because of the way Jesus used stories in a similar way that I do now. For him, it was a way in to connect to the heart of the other. Stories have the ability to pull back the curtain on our souls and show us a different way of viewing life. It's like how Jesus used the story of the Samaritan man in Luke 10, 25-37 as a way to remind his audience of their own humanity, regardless of where they were born or what their social status was. He used the story to cut right to the heart when they asked, who is my neighbor? And now I can imagine Jesus saying to me, your neighbor is the face you see when you look in the mirror. It is the people you see on the street. It is the person you see with the unspoken story in their eyes. The one you know is suffering and needs compassion. The one that is internally crying out to be seen and heard and sat with. They are all around us and they are within us. So I'm hungry for stories because they can tell me about my own life. And there's a deep longing to have parts of myself reflected back to me, for someone to help me make meaning of all the pieces, and of course a strong desire to hide my shame from any light at all. I've loved, while I've been in school, to look at myths, legends, and fairy tales, and now Bible stories, because they're sometimes an easier way of digesting my own trauma, pain, violence, and goodness and they reflect back my humanity and help me see things I wouldn't have otherwise. Sometimes it's easier looking at a character and what they're struggling with than looking at the reality of my own life, but yet it reminds me of the reality of my own life. So there was an article in The Atlantic where author Julie Beck said, storytelling then, fictional or non-fictional, realistic or embellished with dragons, is a way of making sense of the world around us. She goes on to quote Jonathan Adler, an assistant professor of psychology. Stories don't have to be simple like fairy tales, which I would argue fairy tales are not simple. Have you read any of the original fairy tales? (laughs) Not the Disney ones. Uh, The ones where they have to like dance on shoes made of fire and there's not happy endings. So I would disagree with Jonathan there. But stories don't have to be really simple like fairy tales. They can be complicated. Life is incredibly complex. There are lots of things going on in our environment and in our lives at all times. And in order to hold on to our experience, we need to make meaning out of it. The way we do that is by structuring our lives into stories. So maybe you don't have words for the stories that live within you. Many times, trauma erases language. It's a part of how trauma works in our brain. But your body can still speak through music, art, writing, dancing, and countless other mediums, and it's what my body did for many years before I knew how to start exploring my inner landscape intentionally. The more I study psychology, the more I realize we are resilient creatures, and our bodies are excellent storytellers. We just have to learn how to listen. Four years ago, I would have told you that I didn't really have any stories. I would have told you that my childhood was good, 
even though I didn't remember much of it. It wasn't until I attended a lay counseling certificate program at the Allender Center here in Seattle focused on teaching people how to sit with stories of trauma that it started me on a path of realization. And it's taken another, it's taken four years to tear down the veil of what was constructed for me as a narrative and what my brain did to protect me from truth. To protect me from the knowledge of massive amounts of trauma. So I'm not the same person that I was four years ago, and I am the same person I always was. Just with a little bit more, maybe a lot more, awareness about what it means to walk around and care for my own body. Because now I recognize some of the important stories I've been carrying around all this time that made me who I am today. Like Dorian Gray in his first portrait, we sometimes can't bear to look at our own faces, but outside stories help us sit next to the parts of ourselves that we both love and fear. The mythic form of the tale doesn't make it any less real, and it can offer enough distance and space for us to feel safe enough to communicate, hey, something of this happened to me, at least until we're ready to tell the whole story. It gives us language for the stories we contain within ourselves and we have no words for them and they help, help us get closer to the raw details of our own lives. It's because of the new space in the biblical text for me to ask questions that I know I'm getting closer to who God is and I know now that I'm not falling away, I'm falling towards, completely shattered and held together by love, a walking paradox. I want to end with another quote from this professor. Um, it's time to read your own life because your story is the one that could set us all ablaze.